when I was working at Disneyland during college, it was really important that I connected with our guests. And these guests were coming from around the world and from different backgrounds, different lifestyles, cultures, languages. And I found that I really needed to take time to listen to them, to relate to them, and then to help them have a better experience while they're experiencing a magical day at Disneyland. Hi, I am your host, Raquel Ark, and welcome to your Listening Superpower podcast. This show opens your mind on ways to transform challenging conversations into opportunities for clarity, connection, and ease at work and at home. Discover how to grow your listening superpower to help you become a more effective communicator. Be inspired by conversations with authors, scientists, and leaders that will help you grow your leadership toolbox with strategies that you can use right away. Let's work smarter and feel better with our listening superpower. How can listening help organizations become better corporate citizens and impact critical global issues starting at the local level? Welcome to the Listening Superpower Podcast. I am your host, Raquel Ark, and on this episode, you will hear stories from Jeff Hoffman on how he has navigated challenges and successes in many areas of corporate citizenship. With over 31 years with the Walt Disney Company, Jeff didn't just climb the corporate ladder. He infused meaning into his roles, culminating as the vice president of Disney Worldwide Outreach. Now, it's one thing to lead a business, but Jeff's work has consistently danced at the intersection of commerce and compassion. Through his own consultancy, Jeff Hoffman and Associates, and his foundational role at the Institute for Corporate Citizenship and Philanthropy, He's been reimagining not just business, but its place in our larger world. Enjoy listening to how corporations can evolve their role in society for greater impact and at the same time, adapt to the local needs. Enjoy listening in. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to the Listening Superpower podcast. I'm so happy that you're with me today. Thanks, Raquel. Happy to be here with you. So to start off the podcast, if you've listened to it, you probably know the question that's coming. If not, you'll be surprised. When did you first notice the power of listening, whether it worked or it didn't? Hmm. That is a really good question, probably going way back because I tend to be someone who likes to talk. And I'm also somebody who has lots of opinions and lots of thoughts. And I like to get those out there. And probably somewhere, I don't know, it could be as a child, it, it could be in high school. But I would say when I was working at Disneyland during college, it was really important that I connected with our guests. And these guests were coming from around the world and from different backgrounds, different lifestyles, cultures, languages. And I found that I really needed to take time to listen to them, to relate to them, and then to help them have a better experience while they're experiencing a magical day at Disneyland. 
And I would say that's when I really began to consciously think about the importance of listening versus me pontificating. <laughs> so if I may, you just made me think of, I don't know, a quote. Basically, you were listening to give an experience. Correct. Correct. Nice. And I think, you know, that's because we live in a world of 8 billion people and each one of these people are different and they're looking at the world through different lenses and to help them experience the world it's kind of that concept of meeting them where they are you need to know where they are and in order to do that you need to listen to them I think, before you can effectively impart information. Mm. How old were you when you were working at Disney? 18, 19, 20, 18, 19. And, You know, those four-year college experience. You know, I was going to college, but I was working at Disneyland selling rubber snakes and shrunken heads in Adventureland. <laughs> and it was, you know, a really fun and exciting time. And uh, we had the Los Angeles Olympics taking place in 1984. We had people in from around the world. We had athletes. We had parents, friends, and family of athletes. Even though Disneyland always attracted a global audience, it just kind of put a laser focus on the differences of the gas coming into the park. So there was a point in time where you realized, oh, wait a second. If I listen to them, then something else happens here. Correct. Yeah. Because you can't assume, even if you're speaking the same language, whether it's English is your first language, English is the second language, we hear things differently based on whatever is going on in our head, you know, how we perceive the world, we have unconscious biases, you know, lots of things that, that we talk about today that we didn't talk about then, but but our lenses. And in order to actually make a meaningful connection, it's helpful to understand what are those lenses. Yeah, nice. And um, so you spent a lot of years at Disney. Correct. 31. Yeah. 31 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> to be exact. To be. <laughs> you know, just so that our audience gets a feeling for who you are, because we're going to talk about a lot of other things. I know you spent a lot of years there, but maybe you can describe some of the important milestones of what you were doing at Disney and how that impacted some of the perception that you have around listening and impact in the world, which we will get to. Okay, yes. Yeah. So I've already told you uh, about my time in Adventureland next to the Jungle Cruise. But so after I graduated from college, I spent really my professional career at Disney, located at the Walt Disney Studios in Burbank, California, right outside of Los Angeles, which is where the, the movies and television shows are made, the animated films, but it's also the corporate headquarters. And I was in corporate during all of that time. So I spent 16 years in corporate HR, but not doing traditional HR work with 
what I was call hiring, firing, and how much you're going to pay people. But I was focused on corporate culture. And again, corporate culture involves a lot of listening as well as, as you know, instilling the values of the company into the employees. But again, listening to kind of meet them where they are and make it relevant is Disney is a global company. And I worked, you know, on every continent except for Antarctica. Uh, and we can never get the penguins from Mary Poppins, our penguins, to communicate and listen to the penguins on Antarctica and get them engaged in our work. But I worked on all six out of the seven continents. But, you know, when dealing with corporate culture, it's, and in your dealing where you, you know, want your employees or cast members, as you call them, it didn't need to be the best, and to bring out the richness of their own experiences into whatever their role is within the company. You know, that listening, I think, is an important piece of it. So I had the corporate culture aspect for 16 years. And then my last 10 years, I had a global responsibility for what's often called corporate social responsibility today, corporate citizenship, uh, but it was basically uh, philanthropy, community relations, employee volunteering, cause-related marks. So again, I was uh, doing that globally and really important to be able to understand the nuances of every corner of the world. But I will mention two particular things that I think are, are relevant to my Disney careers. One is I started the Disney Legends program, which was a way of honoring individuals whose body and work had made a significant impact on the Disney legacy. And this was a program to honor a lot of the early animators, the Imagineers, which are theme park designers. It could be actors, actresses. It could be people within the company who were important to the role. And again, it, it was a way of them being able to impart their wisdom onto new generations. And then the other program I started is the Disney Volunteers Program, which is a way for the employees or cast members to get involved in their own local communities, and particularly with a focus of helping children in needs. So that was the work that we really focused on with our charitable outreach uh, work. I mean, and I started that from one existing program at Disneyland that I was part of when I was an hourly cast member. And I grew it across the U.S. and was operating in 50 countries when I retired from the company. That's uh, a big, the scale. Yeah, yeah, but again, you know, tying back to this conversation, in order to be effective and with that scale, you need to know what the differences are because I made a lot of mistakes along the way at my Disney career. And I would say a lot of it had to do with not listening. You know, sitting in corporate headquarters, you know, we've got the world in front of us. Everybody, you know, around the world had to fit into this and eventually roll back to, you know, to corporate and putting together programs like with the Disney Volunteers program is like, okay, here's the plan and then let's implement it in every country. Well, 
things as simple as children in need look different in different places within the United States, in different places in Europe, let alone what it looks like in India, or South Africa. Or, and in order to understand those differences, you need to talk to people, but you really need to listen and understand what they're saying in order to, when I was doing the launch, at that point, I was course correcting because it was like, oh, yeah, no, that doesn't make sense. If I would have gone and had conversations with people beforehand versus thinking, okay, here's this amazing plan and here's your playbook and go yeah. do it. And, you know, I saw failure in a lot of places. And, and I learned an important lesson is, no, I need to go explore. I need to spend time in these various locations and really understand. And again, a lot of it is listening to understand. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, that's so true. A lot of times we have these ideas, we have these biases, we have this plan. It's so great, wonderful. And we say, let's do it. And we actually haven't taken the time to listen to the voices who this would impact or the people on the ground or the feet on the ground to find out what's really going on or maybe that things are different than what we expected. I mean, you hear that a lot in, you know, different sustainability type of projects where we try to help places, but we haven't even actually asked the people we're trying to help if that's what they need or what they want, you know? Yeah. So, but it's similar. I've got examples for later on on exactly what you're <laughs> Talking, talking about, about when I was rolling out the Disney Volunteers program, it was in the early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And it was also a different era on how companies looked at the world being a multinational corporation and how they operate. It's very different today. Mm -hmm. So if you think about, you know, you, you said that you made this mistake. At first you had this plan, you put it down, then you realize, wait a second, I have to explore first. I love this. I have to explore first. There is some point in time where you realize that we can have an idea, we can have a vision, but explore first to make sure that this is to fine tune or to adapt this plan or maybe do a different plan. I'm not sure. Can you think of an example? Once you chose to explore first, can you think of a moment where that exploration impacted what you did or, what, or a decision that was made? Yeah, that's a really, really good question because I was a little bit further, actually quite a bit further in my career when the Walt Disney Company decided to move from a licensing model to an operating model in both China and India. And what that means is whether it be, you know, product that you see in the stores or, uh, you know, a television program or whatever. It was basically a product that was created in the United States, sometimes in Europe, and through third-party distributors. It was either sold in stores in those two countries or was run on, you know, a television station or in a movie theater. But Disney didn't operate. And, and Disney made a conscious decision in both of those countries being, you know, the two largest countries population-wise world that no Disney was going to actually establish a presence there an operation where we could make television shows films create product again that's relevant for that market versus exporting what we think in the western world is our product 
to them. But in order to do that effectively, I sat on a team of new business development people within international on what is Disney going to look like in these two countries, whether it be you know, Disney Channel stores, or we have theme parks, no theme parks there, you know, et cetera. And I was sitting at the table on how is Disney going to be a relevant good corporate citizen in those countries? So to your specific question on an example, let me talk about India. So in the U.S. and in Europe, when we're focusing on children in need, to be very blunt, it was sick children and poor children. And basically, how can we lift them up? But with children, sick children, for instance, you know, usually children with life-threatening illnesses, it was how can we put a smile on their face when they need it most, when they're going through some really horrible treatments. And because, you know, when you look at a company's core competencies, Disney, yeah, yeah, sure, the cancer that they're going through, if that's what they were afflicted by. But the psychosocial aspects of healing, giving that child hope and helping the child laugh at what that means to their parents and siblings when they're all going through this together and bringing the family together is important. So most of the work, again, in the Western part of the world was focused on children's hospitals and the child life specialists that, that were there. You know, like Disney has a long relationship with the Great Ormond Street Hospital in London, for instance. And I've spent lots of time, you know, in that hospital. But it was all around this psychosocial aspect of healing. Um, you know, and then Make-A-Wish. Disney is the world's largest provider of wishes for Make-A-Wish. So, but you get to India and, and the government asked us when we were establishing it, we have a real problem with polio still. And there's something, you know, in Europe and the U.S., even though once in a while we see a case of polio happen, pretty much it was eradicated, you know, early on in both your and my lifetime. So, but <laughs> the view in Burbank was, no, we're doing this overall. We don't get involved in a specific disease. So how do you say, yes, we're going to do a woman's cancer issue, but we are going to do leukemia? You know, it's just because it's like, where can you make the biggest differences with your core competencies? You know, and that's kind of always been with corporate philanthropy, you know, my driving force. Well, what they needed again, was storytelling. And who better to sell stories is they wanted to be able to tap into our characters to tell the stories primarily to moms to, um, you know, have the little sugar cube with the drop of medicine in it. You know, again, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. But, and... All of a sudden, everybody started to say, oh, no, no, we don't do that. We don't get involved in specific things. So the country manager for India and myself 
Yeah, and, and this is where I actually went to India a couple of times before, you know, we launched a plan to understand this. Like, okay, we need to do it. It makes sense for who Disney is and meeting a need in India that we can help with that is very different from what, you know, the needs of sick children are in the Western world. And we did it, and then I kept having people in Burbank that would hear about it. It's like, okay, how come you keep telling me, no, I can't do this for their pet disease organization? And it's like, you have to understand where you are and what the needs are and the differences. You know, it's cultural differences, language differences, huge socioeconomic you know, differences. So... I spent a lot of time listening when I was in India. My very first trip, I spent a day walking around a slum in Mumbai that has 3 million people. The population of the city of Los Angeles is 3.5 million. Mumbai is over 20 million. But it's like walking around a slum with 3 million people. It's like you really, you know, in talking to the people who live there, you begin, but again, it's talking, but really to listen, to understand what they are going through and hear them. Because if I was just sitting in Burbank in the U.S., it didn't go out and explore and actually listen to what's going on on the ground, I too probably would have said, oh, no, no, we don't focus on a specific disease, you know, just focus on children's hospitals. I've visited a lot of children's hospitals in India and, you know, have done work there, but we were able to actually tackle a real problem that the government was having, that we could use our core competency of storytelling to move the needle on a specific problem. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, that is really important to pay attention to, to be able to to recognize that every situation is different, right? And yeah. because a lot of times instead of just this top town go across, but maybe it, it does make sense to change things. And at the same time, you know, you did get, by doing it that way, you got some pushback or whatever from people who may not have understood those perspectives or had taken that time to do that. So there's this tension that happens sometimes in these processes, which are very, yes. very real. And how do you get very clear about how you approach these different situations so that you can have the impact, you know, in terms of what the big picture looks like, right? I'm glad you mentioned tension <laughs> because, you know, when you're working with communities that are coming from so many different places, and I've got to put on my conference board. Uh, had. And this was uh, some work we did with our Corporate Citizenship Council prior to the pandemic. And we visited four cities in the United States to look at how cities were innovators of social change and how corporations were or could be part of the solution. And we very strategically looking at various demographics, needs, locations, et cetera. We visited 
uh, Detroit, Los Angeles, Baltimore, and Newark. And we did a large report out of it with an appendix from each one of these. But I think our time in Baltimore was the most helpful and the most uncomfortable because we were having, yes, we had a meeting in a nice corporate headquarters in Baltimore. We had a greeting from the CEO. You know, we had a, a wonderful cocktail reception up on the roof with these meetings of Chesapeake Bay. But that's not necessarily how to be effective is having people come to you in those situations. We went out to communities and met them where they were. We went to a coffee house. We went to a neighborhood center and and had these discussions there. You know, a lot of people don't like corporations. I disagree with them. I think, you know, we couldn't be having this discussion right now if it weren't for major corporations. So I have a bias that is very pro-business, very pro-corporate. But not pe- all people feel like that. And, and, you know, we have some people who are basically saying, you are the problem. You are the cause of the problem that we're facing now. Now, whether I agree with that or I disagree is kind of irrelevant because this is their view, just like I have my view. And, and if we were intently listening, we were hearing some pretty nasty things directed to our faces. (laughs) And, but yet those conversations are really the most helpful because again, when we're doing community relation programs as companies around the world, the people who are doing them are usually like me who had, uh, you know, nice upbringing, had a great college education, fairly affluent, you know, good job. I mean, my reality and their reality are so different on a day-to-day basis. But by rolling up your sleeves and listening and then Encouraging them to listen to where you can have some common ground. And an unintended consequence of this, we did the report that we had intended to do, but we did a supplemental piece that was titled, Listen to Lead. And if we're going to be leaders in this movement in a world, we're going to be a whole lot more effective if we're listening to the people that we're trying to serve, understanding what their needs are, understanding where they want the tools to help themselves versus somebody coming in to help them. It really has evolved from, again, using my Disney Volunteers example, amazing, beautiful plan. Looks so great on paper, but failed in certain parts of the world because we weren't taking into consideration the realities on the ground in those locations. To now, where people who are in corporate social responsibility, we, we tend to go into things now and 
we listen. We want to talk to people. We ask a lot of questions today. We don't do a lot of telling. We do a lot of questions because we want you to tell us is we know that's going to be more effective. We're seeing that effectiveness where programs today are based on a lot of input from the people who are being served. Yeah, nice. And, you know, circling back to this whole story, which has been great, you know, it shows that, you know, often we try to avoid these difficult or uncomfortable, you said they're uncomfortable conversations. And actually we might be getting anger from people, which is not a personal thing. It's this experience that they have, the reality that they're living through and they're, you know, expressing that frustration or getting it finally to someone's, you know, listening to me or whatever. Yeah, something that what you just said, you know, reminded me um, is a term that we use in the, the volunteerism world where, again, we used to swoop in and, and we would go in and help these people without really understanding what they needed help. And we would call that you're being served upon where now we try to use serve with. So how can we serve together to be more effective? And I think the best example of this in the world is Habitat. And Habitat for Humanity International has done an amazing program where you can have volunteers who might be coming in from different places around the world or different places, even with the city, and actually volunteering with the, the people who are going to live in that home that's yeah. being built. And they call that the sweat equity that the people who are living in the home. And, you know, when you're hammering a nail, if you're a corporate CEO, or if you're a janitor, you're equal. You're both hammering a nail. You're both driving that nail to the same outcome. And those type of opportunities where you're serving together, I truly believe is a way that helps bring people together because surely those two people are probably talking to each other and listening to each other, and learning things that they never understood before about either, you know, person, and maybe coming out with a little different perspective of what you think about the other person and what their situation is. Yeah, it's, I love this idea of this with working with each other or serving with each other, this, this with thing. You know, in the last episode, just just to, to make a connection, this with word keeps coming up. In the last episode was with Mary Arthur, and she's a storyteller, and she tries to describe it in terms of witnessing somebody, but she uses the word, it's like withness, we're being with each other. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And you Did have kind I of wit that? too. <laughs> no, you don't have to with <laughs> I like that withness. Yeah, it's It's like a term that I coined years ago because volunteering doesn't always work if you're helping a neighbor do something because, you know, you're part of the community. You want to help each other. Are you really volunteering? <laughs> Maybe. I call it neighboring. 
I'm out neighboring, you know, somebody is sick and I go to the grocery store for them or they're doing a landscape project and they need help trimming their tree. You know, it's neighbor. <laughs> neighbor. <laughs> I love it. Uh, we can do some more withering. I don't know. Withering. I like withering. that. I, I'm withering while I'm neighboring. <laughs> So you do a lot of work around corporate responsibilities, also impacting or also on the topic of ESG, which relates to the sustainability topic. And there's a lot of different perspectives there, but it's there's a lot going on in the world, in the environment <laughs> and with people. We see a lot of things happening right now. And do you have any tips or advice on how even corporations and communities can be with work with each other better, maybe more effectively would be a good word. <laughs> Oh, I could spend an entire podcast series on this topic. <laughs> but I think, I mean, actually, since our topic is about listening, and to me is listening to understand. And I think so many of our problems around the world, in communities, you know, even if you look at where you're sitting, whether it be in Germany in particular or the EU, and to take it back to really more the sustainability and the environmental focus is the different perspectives on how to reduce greenhouse gases. And in a lot of it is, I mean, you have Germany and France. You have very different perspectives on nuclear, for instance. And to me, obviously, as being an outsider in the United States, I mean, again, I have my own opinion, but I actually think probably both sides, if they listen to each other more versus sticking their feet into the ground of pro-nuclear, anti-nuclear, we would probably get to a better resolution knowing that the energy transition that we're all going towards, or going towards, and we're trying, you know, to get there is going to take compromise. And I'm a big believer in compromise in a world that is now very polarized, mm -hmm. and where both sides tend to say it's my way or the highway. There's not listening going on with the polarization. It's just talking. This is my opinion, and you better follow it. And if you don't like my opinion, you're wrong. Versus listening and understanding the nuances of the issues that are before you. And to me, you know, I, I call myself a policy walk because I, I like to read. I like to know what the issues are. I know, you know, sitting on the other side of the world how different countries feel just within the EU on a lot of different issues. And that's important, especially when you're looking at the world from a social and environmental perspective. You're a multinational corporation. You've got to understand the nuances that are going on around the world. But I think right now, in order for us to really achieve the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, there's 17 of them. My favorite is number 17 and that's all about coming together in community and collaboration and service and all of that because i think that we need to do that 
in order to accomplish number one, which is poverty. We were making great strides before the pandemic. We had pulled about a billion people out of poverty in the world, and the pandemic put about a, those billion people right back into poverty. So we need to really listen to understand what is going on in the world to get past this polarization that we have, which, frankly, besides you know, climate issues, the environmental crisis is probably the most detrimental thing that is facing society today across the board around. You know, I was thinking this number 17, I hadn't thought of that before, but 17 is about a process. It's more about how we work together, right? Yes. Yes. And I wonder if that would be the priority, if that would be the one thing that people had to focus on. I wonder if then things would happen. I think so. Is I would, even though number one, you know, poverty is so important, but, you know, if you read the SDGs and, you know, it used to be before the pandemic, it was like the big, you know, cocktail party conversation. Well, it depends on what groups you were with. Okay. You know, what, give me your top four SDGs, you know, type of thing. But now I would always reorder them and put 17 is number one, because to, in order to achieve the other 16, I think we need to focus on 17. Yep. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking right now. I hadn't really thought of it in that way, but I wonder, you know, focusing on the process and how we can work together would impact more organically, probably the rest of the SDGs. I think so. Yeah. We're coming to the end of our, um, this episode. And is there any other thoughts or anything else you'd like to share with our audience that you feel like would be helpful or that's on your heart? It's, it's a complicated world. It's getting more complicated all the time. And whether we're talking about SDGs and 8 billion people around the world and what different countries are approaching things or how things are happening within countries, you know, just look within your own families, your community of friends, your neighborhoods too. The stuff that we're seeing on high, we also see very much at a level where you have an opportunity to uh, change that. And I think this is where listening, like, you know, I can talk to, uh, let's say, a 30-year-old niece that were quite different on the political spectrum, but... I still respect her and she still respects me because we can have honest discussions that are also coming from knowledge and fact versus having discussions that are based on hearsay, sound bites, rhetoric, or, you know, some meme that we saw as social media. And I think the important thing about listening is also understand what you're hearing can be opinion, but really try to also pull the facts out of what you're listening. I'm a very fact-based person, more so than the emotional side. So, and and this is where I have a difficult time because in the polarization field, these groups 
from both sides, or there could be more than just two sides, are really playing on people's emotions. And to me, that's very destructive. So to me, listen or facts. Yeah, especially those really polarized discussions. And when if I can just pull from this conversation today, recognizing that there are differences and yes. recognizing we only have one perspective, recognizing that sometimes the best conversations or most effective conversations where we can learn are actually uncomfortable and not comfortable and that there are tensions and they are just there. So how do we work with them and with each other to navigate through those through those tensions? And actually that can really even further create something that is something we wouldn't have imagined before that can have real impact. Very true. Yeah. I used a lot of words to get to the point of what you just said very succinctly. <laughs> so. Thank you, Jeff. It's been such a pleasure to have you here. Uh, people are interested in learning more about what you do and wanting to understand better corporate citizenship or ESG or, you know, a lot of these topics. Where do they find you? The best place to find me is on LinkedIn. And there are quite a few Jeff Hoffmans in the world. There's an astronaut. So cool, not me. There's a baseball player, not me. There's two kind of talking head people, and they actually both don't have hair. So sometimes people will confuse the, the two of us, but I'm the Jeff Hoffman who works at the conference board and worked at Disney, and I should pop up pretty uh, fast. Like if you type <laughs> Jeff Hoffman Disney or Jeff Hoffman. Well, I know a lot of people listening to this are actually really also concerned about the environment. You know, you see people who are concerned about people, concerned about the environment. You know, these are a lot of topics we kind of, you know, paying attention to that. And so, so Jeff is a great source to see how can it, how can companies and communities and impact also the environment and things that are going on in the world. Yeah. And, and I... Yes, absolutely. And as I'm always reminding people, it's not just climate, it's biodiversity and yeah. ocean plastics. Those dun, are the big three that we should be at. You know, I love the ocean. It's in my heart. So that's, you know, if I donate, I'm more likely to adopt a coral than I am to adopt a kid. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 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 Well, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> It's been a pleasure. <laughs> and you too. Thank you for having me today. I'm your host, Raquel Ark, and you have just enjoyed your listening superpower podcast. This is an independent show. So please show your support by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, and sharing with your friends. I love to hear from my listeners what you love, what questions you have, any great guests that you have for the podcast. Email me at listeningsuperpower at gmail.com or send a voicemail at plus four nine one seven three two three four zero seven two two. Check out listeningalchemy.com if you want to help your team communicate more effectively together. 
We focus on evidence-based listening strategies, and we do it in a playful and experiential way so that your team can work better and feel better together. Thanks for listening in.